Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and I'm here with Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. On this week's episode, I've got one of my favorite mass spectrometrists that I know. Her name is Dr. Nadja Chek, and she's a Patricia Sullivan Distinguished Professor of Chemistry at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Now, Nadja has a really fascinating background as a childhood um, growing up around medicinal plants and has just really shared this um, amazing interest in the natural world and the chemistry of nature. And so I'm so excited to have her on the show. Thanks so much for coming, um, Nadja. So great to be here, Cassie. I know we are just kindred spirits in that way in our appreciation of plant chemistry in the natural world. And it's just um, a huge pleasure to get to talk with you and an honor to be here today. It's great. Well, why don't we start with just tell us a little bit about yourself. Like what was the thing that really turned you on to medicinal plants? Well, you know, I would have to say that medicinal plants turned me on to medicinal plants. Um, <laughs> you know, I kind of spent my my childhood around plants a lot. Um, and I would say I'm a student of nature. Um, I grew up, my parents decided to raise me sort of off grid, me and my sister and my brother in a farm in rural Oregon. And um, at that time, it was it was a different time in terms of how much supervision children were given. And we were kind of given free reign of the farm and allowed to go into the woods and explore and build fairy houses and build forts and climb trees and um, and and also to garden. And so I think, um, you know, I was often writing stories by the creek or sketching in a sketchbook and looking at plants up close um, and also hearing people talk about using plants to treat disease. And that's something that fascinated me. And I really wanted to understand how that worked uh, from an early age. And so I thought I would be a botanist and I really appreciate botany, but in college I got really excited about chemistry and realized that there was a, a connection between chemistry and, and plants and the medicinal eff effectiveness of plants. That's great. And, and you actually, if I remember correctly, you had a really early start in college too, right? When did you I did, finish yes, college? I, I actually, I was, I was kind of unschooled by my parents for, for my early educational years. And then I went to community college when I was 14. So I had a nice community college start, which was really excellent. And I fell in love with, with the university environment and kind of never left since then. Um, mm -hmm. but but strangely enough, I have my uh, PhD, but I don't have a high school diploma because I went straight to college when I was 14. So, but no one ever asked for the high school diploma once you have the PhD. So it works out. <laughs> that works great. That's great. Well, um, one of those tools that I know that you got fascinated with was mass spectrometry when you were um, doing in college and going into your PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about like, what is this tool and the mechanics of how it works and, and how can we use this to understand nature better? Yes, I, I don't get that question very often, Cassie. So I have to <laughs> say I'm like my my little nerd heart is bursting with joy at this moment to have an opportunity to talk about mass spectrometry. Um, I will say that mass so mass spectrometry is a tool that's been around for quite more than a hundred years. Um, that is used to essentially weigh molecules. So, you know, each molecule has a unique composition of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen atoms, or most do, and, and other elements that are combined together to give it a very unique signature in terms of its weight. So um, you can identify a molecule if you can figure out how much it weighs, or at least that's a piece of the information we need to identify a molecule. 
So a lot of times, you know, we're interested in an extract from a plant that might have some interesting effect. Maybe it kills bacteria. Maybe it helps to reduce pain when you consume it. And the question is, which molecule in there is responsible for that effect? And mass spectrometry is a tool that we use both to separate all the molecules that are in there from each other and then to weigh them, which gives us insight into which ones are there. That's great. And you 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 touched on something that's one of the bigger challenges in, in natural products research, and that's the mixtures, right? Because plants don't produce just that single molecule, but there are many different molecules. So you have the challenge in separating them and also understanding um, which ones are present. Um, so let's say we have this machine, this, this mass spectrometer, and you have a plant extract that maybe you've created by steeping in alcohol and you've prepared it for analysis by the machine. What does the machine actually do to get that, that information from the extract? Well, the, somehow you have to go from that liquid extract into what we call the, the gas phase. So we have to get the molecules to be able to be um, in, to be able to move through a series of lenses within the mass spectrometer that help to separate them out depending on how much they weigh. Um, so you can kind of imagine it almost like one, one type of mass spectrometer, a time of flight mass spectrometer, which is the one I like to use as an example. Essentially what you do is you have a tube that all the molecules are gonna fly down and you can imagine if you give all the molecules the same push at the beginning of the tube, that the heavy ones are not gonna move as quickly because they're gonna be big and slow. And then the light ones, if you give them the same push, are gonna move really quickly. And so you can measure how long it takes for the molecule to move down that tube. And then that information is used to, essentially the instrument is calibrated to convert the information about how long it takes the molecule to fly down a tube to then connect that to what the mass of the molecule was, which then eventually helps us know what the molecule is. Um, so what happens when we put the, the extract into the mass spectrometer is first it's converted over to a gas, and then it goes through a series of lenses. And you can imagine them like lenses that are guiding light, but actually these are lenses that are designed to guide, to guide ions. And then eventually they're gonna go into that time of flight mass analyzer and move down and then strike a detector and when they strike the detector, they cause electrons to be released, which we pick up. And so that 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 allows us to measure how long it took for them to go down the tube because we wait until we see a signal of electrons and that tells you that an ion flew down the tube. That's so cool. It's a, it's it's just really cool. I, I totally geek out around around mass spec and I love it. I love it as a tool to investigate medicinal plants and I'm wondering what is what are some of your favorite plants that you've investigated using mass spec, um, or was there one that you started studying earlier on in your career? Oh, that's a great question. Well, so I'll tell you that I actually started my career in mass spectrometry not studying plants but studying blood, um, which was I was an undergraduate student at a forensic laboratory, and we were trying to figure out how to identify species in blood based on the molecules in the blood. And that actually got me really interested. It turns out that hemoglobin is different depending on the species of animal it comes from. Oh, wow. And so we were weighing hemoglobin molecules and using that to identify 
what species of animal the blood came from and actually use that. I use that in my undergraduate career to help solve a crime where someone was accused of killing bald eagles. And we, we developed this technique that allowed us to identify bald eagle blood. So that was like my first <laughs> introduction. It was a very all American introduction to like CSI. Um, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Very CSI. So that was really <laughs> cool. Um, and you know, there was something about like that moment of sitting in front of a mass spectrometer and looking at the screen and seeing these these patterns come up and realizing that those patterns were telling me this was actually bald eagle blood, which was really like, I feel like that was a transitional moment for me. Um, and actually, early on in my career as a faculty member, I started analyzing plant extracts and I had a similar feeling when I would actually, like I knew about the molecules in the plant extract, for example, spilanthes. If any of you have ever tasted spilanthes before, they call them buzz buttons. They make your tongue really numb and they make you like salivate and drool if you consume them. And um, I remember the first plant I ever analyzed on my mass spectrometer was a spilanthes extract. And I saw the predicted um, molecular weights of the of the molecules in the spilanthes that make your mouth tingle. And I was just like smitten with this idea that you could actually see that um, with the instrument. And that kind of sucked me in. And so we've continued to analyze all different kinds of plants in what's been almost 20 years now for me working on, on those kinds of questions. Most recently, we've been working on kratom, um, which is a plant that's used for uh, treating pain and studying the complex um, molecular makeup of kratom with mass spectrometry. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, and kratom is is a plant that's that's been in the news a lot. There's a lot of debate over its legality. And um, if I understand correctly, there's also debate about around which species are actually in trade. So, and I know you just published um, a, a really nice paper on um, kratom. Can you tell us a bit about what you've discovered? Yeah, thanks, Cassie. We just we just published a paper in Scientific Reports about kratom um, as part of a National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health funded um, project on on kratom, and we've actually been collaborating with a group that's doing clinical studies of kratom to see whether it causes interactions when people consume pharmaceutical drugs at the same time that they consume kratom or other um, pharmaceutical substances. In fact, there's some uh, concerns around drug interactions with kratom, especially because people use kratom to treat pain, but also anecdotally, it's supposed to be helpful for treating addiction to opioids. So we have a lot of people that are co-consuming opioids uh. with kratom, and uh, research is showing that the kratom um, constituents of the kratom plant actually alter the way opioids are, are metabolized. And so there seems to be a higher risk of overdose if you consume mm. the two at the same time. So that's kind of how we got into this. Um, but we also, you know, on the one hand, we really want to help the public to realize the safety concerns of co-consuming uh, Kratom with opioids. On the other hand, we recognize that there is an opioid crisis in the U.S. And, you know, there's there were 42,000 deaths um, in 2016 due to opioid overdose, and the majority of those are due to prescription opioids. Um, so people are having over-the-counter drugs that are ending up causing uh, overdose, maybe intentional or unintentional. And so, you know, we're really interested in whether Kratom could be a potential alternative um, for treating pain that might be less likely to lead to addiction. And, and it does seem like the pharmacology of how 
kratom works is very different than opioids. Um, and that's one of the things we talk about in this paper and also something that's been talked about in other in other research studies is that it seems like the alkaloids in kratom that are responsible for its effects on pain are not do not operate in the same way that the opioids do, even though they bind to the opioid receptors. Oh, interesting. And so so you see that. Um, there's a less there's less of a potential, especially for the major alkaloids that are in the plant. There's less of a potential to lead to addiction among people who 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 consume kratom than there is with opioids, and also that seems to be less of a likelihood for overdose. So, of course, I'm not a clinician. I'm not recommending that anyone um, consume <laughs> yeah. kratom, but I'm really fascinated from a scientific perspective in the possibility of developing alternative strategies for treating pain that are less likely to lead to the risks of addiction and overdose. No, absolutely. It's, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a huge issue. And, you know, it's, it's in a way it's ironic that, you know, opioids were originally from plants as well. So we're yes. looking at one plant remedy that's been used inappropriately, that's led to some bad health outcomes, and then looking to other plants for some possible solutions. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well said. Yeah. And so, um, some of the other work that you've done, I'm thinking back through some of your really fascinating papers over the years. Um, you've also worked in other areas. I know you've done a lot of work on infection. Um, you've done a lot of work also on um, plants like golden seal. Can you tell us a bit about, about those areas of research? Sure, absolutely. We are very interested, actually, in, in many ways, we overlap in interest with your lab, Cassie, in this, in finding alternative ways to treat infection that possibly don't lead to the development of resistance, which is such a problem with antibiotics, or simply to finding new uh, treatments for infection that might um, help to uh, treat drug-resistant infections that have become resistant to antibiotics due to either use or overuse of antibiotics. And golden seal is one plant that we've looked at a lot. Um, it's the use of golden seal to treat infection dates back to the Iroquois and Cherokee. Um, at least that's the earliest documented use. And it's used topically. And it's a plant that grows in North Carolina, but also around, along the East Coast in the hardwood forests. So we've, we've been interested in, in understanding how it works. And, and partly our interest in golden seal is that Early on, we showed that it seemed like there was more than one constituent in the plant that were responsible for its activity. Um, so it's a lot of times, you know, there's sort of this idea that you can take a plant and distill it down to a single molecule and find that single molecule that could then become a pharmaceutical drug. But plants don't always work that way. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's a complex relationship between all the different organisms that are either coexisting mutually or in competition in a natural environment. And it seems like um, golden seal is one plant that produces an antimicrobial alkaloid called berberine that does kill bacteria, but it also um, makes these flavonoids that enhance the antimicrobial activity of the, of the alkaloids. And they do that by, by sort of preventing the alkaloids from getting pumped out of bacterial cells. So one way that bacteria become resistant to um, treat to one way that bacteria become resistant to toxins is that they they produce these pumps that help protect them from whatever's coming in. And uh, if you can block those pumps, then you can actually kill the bacteria more effectively. So plants have figured out how to both 
produce toxic compounds and sort of gum up the pumps that the bacteria use to protect themselves against those toxins. And therefore, what we see is that we actually have better potency in golden seal using a complex extract than we do using a single isolated alkaloid from the plant against bacteria. Yeah. And this process is known as synergy in the field, yes. right? And it's, I think it, it's just so reflective of so much of traditional medicine is around holistic approaches to health. And in a way, even at the chemical level, plants tend to be more holistic because they're using these, you have perhaps your, your lead active compound, but then you might have several other helpers that enhance yep. the activity or perhaps boost the immune system, or as you mentioned, um, block these resist resistance mechanisms. Exactly. Yeah. And it's really, it's tough. It's a complicated thing to study. And that's why linking back to mass spectrometry, you know, it's really cool to have these tools that allow us to comprehensively characterize all the different molecules that are present in a plant and start to be able to then connect those to the biological effects that we see, as opposed to assuming that it's a simple one-to-one -one correspondence. Yeah. Well, and I think what's so cool about the tech, the technology that we have access to, to today is that we're basically learning how to read the language of nature, mm -hmm. right? It's like well we said. have, Absolutely. yeah, there's, you have people think of plants and, and we're talking a lot about medicinal plants on this episode, but this is certainly relevant to, um, many, um, herbal medicines that are taken as foods or as dietary supplements mm -hmm. or as teas, um, or even some of our crops, um, you have plants maybe sessile, but of course they're in constant communication with fungi and bacteria and, um, and insects. Yeah, exactly. It's like all these, you know, there's a lot going on when you look closer and it just makes me think back to your childhood when you were there sketching and observing nature. I was very much, I mean, in the same in the same boat on the other side of the country in South Florida, um, I was in a tree looking at you know uh, epiphytes and in the mud, yeah. in the swamp, and just like you know had these. I wasn't a very good artist, but I had some pretty you know wild journals of just just that that love for nature. I think that's something that's so important to instill in children and even among our graduate students. Oh yes, yeah. And I wanted to shift to talk a bit about this because I know that uh, student training and mentorship are things that you hold near and dear to your heart. And um, these are things that you also promote around equity and diversity and how do we train the next generation of scientists. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about, about those initiatives. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, in some ways I think that what I have always thought about is trying to trying to bring as, as many people to the table as possible when we're doing science and recognizing that that's not just something that we do because it benefits those who have historically been marginalized, but because it benefits all of us, um, mm -hmm. that having a diverse a team of people helps us be more creative, more innovative, um, better at solving problems, and also just learning about the world and stretching and growing and getting to explore new things and new foods and new cultures and new languages. And so, you know, being in a scientific research group is really an excellent opportunity for that. Um, and we also recognize that you know, it's not always been the case in science that everyone is welcome, even though philosophically many of us ascribe to that idea. So 
I think there's a real need to acknowledge, you know, how is the system set up to favor certain individuals, certain demographics, privilege certain people, and how can we um, try to address some of the barriers that are put in place for others? And yeah. what does that look like? Yeah, I'm I'm listening to an audiobook um, right now. I'm a bit I'm I'm a voracious reader, as I know you are as well. And I, I'm listening to um, a lab of one's own by Rita Caldwell, mm. and she's a scientist um, that really lived through this coming of age of becoming a scientist in a time when women weren't supposed to have labs of their own. And um, this is still something that's you know we still have issues with with equity. Um, in among you know different genders in the sciences, but it goes well beyond that, um, well beyond that, and I think the fight's still not over. Um, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, I think you and I benefit in many ways from those women who came before Absolutely. us and and became scientists at a time when women weren't supposed to have labs of their own. And so for us, it's, I don't know about for you, Cassie, but for me, it was almost like, it never really occurred to me not to be a scientist because I'm a woman. It wasn't really a conversation that was being had at the time that I was going through college. You know, it was certainly accepted that I would be welcomed, but um, that's thanks to the people who came before me. And I, I, while mm -hmm. I agree that the, there's still challenges and I think, um, I find that those challenges are greater now that I am a senior, you know, distinguished professor. So I find myself more often in spaces that are primarily dominated by men um, than that than was the case when I was more junior or when I was a student. So there are challenges still, um, but those challenges for me are much smaller than the challenges, for example, of an African-American or, you know, indigenous people or people mm -hmm. who've just been denied resources to start out with um, and also those who visibly just look different than the status quo um, or who are culturally really in a different space. So, you know, the question becomes then how do we turn around and afford that same opportunity to those people that was afforded to us as women in science. And I think women are really poised to do that because we are particularly sensitive to um, to the historical discrimination that has happened. And we're, um, we're eager to help create a more inclusive environment. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really heartened to see all the initiatives that are happening also in different scientific societies. We're both members of the American Society of Pharmacognosy. And um, it's really exciting that you were actually on a, on a panel recently on the topics of diversity and inclusion. And I know that they just um, announced a new um, fellowship for students, yeah. you know, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, there's a, the American Society of Pharmacognosy just rolled out a summer uh, fellowship for for individuals from underrepresented groups in science um, to support undergraduate researchers and to afford to give them um, summer research stipends, uh, full summer research support. Uh, we also, as a society, have just made the opportunity for um, people from minority-serving institutions to have free membership. Uh, we're doing various workshops and webinars. We have an ambassadors program sending people out to give talks at um, at minority-serving institutions to sort of get other people people teach others about the field of natural products and and give them the opportunity to participate. So, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done. Um, it's almost bottomless in a way, but it's really exciting to see people energized and and trying to affect change and to see that that I have great 
uh, optimism about the younger generation coming into science right now and their um, capacity to do things in a different way. Um, it's really exciting to see. So I, I have tremendous optimism for sure. That's great. Well, um, moving forward, what's next on your horizon? What kind of exciting things do you have cooking that you can share, um, both in your science and your other outreach activities? Mm, great question. Yeah, so uh, it's been an interesting year. <laughs> yeah. As you know. Um, so, you know, it's been, it's been a learning experience for a lot of us in terms of finding ways to stay connected in the midst of a pandemic when a lot of our interactions are happening now virtually and, um, we're not seeing each other as much as we were, um, I'm really proud of my research group for continuing to do research in the midst of a pandemic and going into the lab and practicing, you know, physical distancing from each other when it's hard to do and wearing masks and working at odd hours of the day and all that um, and, and training each other over Zoom and making videos and just so creative. Um, and they're really inspiring to me. And one of the ways that I have been connecting with them is to garden with them. Uh, I know nice. you've been gardening too over the summer, Cassie. Yes. Um, yeah. I uh, love so, it. <laughs> yeah, I do too. So I've always been, I've always been in a gardener. Um, but this summer was definitely a summer like no other in terms of not traveling. So we were able to garden more and um, I manage a community garden in my neighborhood. And that's actually a source of some of the plant material we study in in my research lab. And I've been, for a long time, I've brought students into the garden to sort of help them connect with sort of, if you will, the roots of their research. Um, and, you know, we publish papers on plants that we harvest and grow. And, and um, so that's pretty cool to have students be able to go all the way from working on a plant, see, planting it, seeing it grow, harvesting it, taking in the lab, looking at what molecules are there. Um, and we're, I'm really excited to do even more of that. I think it, it, it ties into the, what we were just talking about in terms of increasing participation in STEM, um, that, you know, not everybody finds the lab by the same pathway. And one pathway that really excites students is to see this stuff happening in, in see it in action and uh so yeah so and some people have different skill sets right like some people are really good at math when they come to college but they might know nothing about how to like plant a seed um and there's some people that might know how to grow plants but have never really solved a differential equation so you know it's sort of a way to diversify what we're doing um so i've i've got a project now where i'm working with our campus to try to create some outdoor learning spaces that include a, a botanical research garden and um, nice. also a food wow. production garden. And I really want to tie that to the research we're doing and um, and also to education. So that's a that's a big project on the horizon right now that I've been putting a lot of energy into. We'll see what comes of that. That sounds amazing. You've got to write this up as, as you know, a how-to manual so other <laughs> universities can replicate it. No, because I, I agree. There's just something about seeing the full life cycle and of hand, having your hands in the earth and understanding, mm -hmm. like, because really you're not going to understand these, as we mentioned, the chemical language of life if you don't take time to look at life, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, it's right. like, yeah. All you see is like some dead goo in a test tube. It doesn't tell you much about life. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's true. Yeah. It's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'll mention one more thing, Cassie. Uh, in terms of future projects, our lab just got um, 
funded in a collaborative project with a couple other universities that's designed at developing, essentially developing new tools with mass spectrometry for studying the complexity of botanical natural products. So it's called the HIFAN Center, the Center for High Content Functional Annotation of Natural Products, and it includes scientists at Simon Fraser University and the University of California, Santa Cruz. So there's sort of three universities that are all co-PIs on the project, co-directors of the project, if you will. Um, and we're really trying to make the tools that are used, including mass spectrometry, for characterizing the complexity of natural products of plant medicines, um, more accessible to the community and more effective to solve problems that are really unique to the natural products field. So I'm yeah. really excited to be a part of that project and we're just embarking on a five years of that. So we'll see where that goes, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the nerd science piece um, separate from the, the gardening and that's education. A, that's piece. a cool science piece. I mean, it's all cool science, but um, yeah, I, I'm so excited about the direction that projects like that are, are going because, you know, most people, again, when you see like the TV version of science, you have scientists in lab coat with their goggles and they put something into a machine and voila, they have the answer. And yeah, actually, yeah. no, we, we have like, you know, in a single leaf, you have hundreds, if not thousands of compounds, and we don't know what most of those things are. No. And so building out those tools is so critical. So, um, yeah. Yeah. We don't even know how many there are. Like you just said, hundreds, if not thousands, nobody can even agree on the answer. So that's actually <laughs> one of the questions we're working on right now is like, what is the diversity of, of chemistry in a single leaf? And how many molecules are there and which ones are there? And um, mm -hmm. it's a tougher question to answer than one would think considering how many years we've devoted to the study of plants. Um, but I think we're gonna get there. Yeah. Well, and it's funny if you even think a little bit further back and in, into the chemistry of plants, you know, we focus a lot on what are called secondary metabolites and that this was distinguished them from primary metabolites, which scientists study because they're important for the basic growth of the plant. And then there were all these other things. They're like these secondary things, like what are yeah, these yeah. for? <laughs> and we're just starting to understand that like secondary metabolites are actually some of the most important metabolites to human health. Yeah, exactly. They are secondary, but not secondary. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Well, I know um, one other thing I want to touch on before we wrap up is you also have a podcast of your own. Can you tell oh, yes. us a bit about it and where we can find it? Absolutely. Um, so I am a host, co-host of the podcast Yes and Cafe. And I would love to have anyone listen who would like to. And I think if you just Google Yes And Cafe uh, at the University of North Carolina Greensboro, you will find it. It is available through Podbean and you can stream it for free um, from the internet as well. We talk with all different guests of stories of ordinary people who do extraordinary things. Oh, that sounds fascinating and a great place to leave this because you are doing some really extraordinary things. And I would not call you ordinary. <laughs> I feel pretty ordinary, Cassie. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Nadja. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded remotely on Skype during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can find all of our past episodes on our website. It's foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find us on iTunes, um, Podbean, all other uh, major streaming services. If you'd like to catch the video version of this interview, definitely check out our YouTube channel at Teach Ethnobotany and look for the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.